Hello and welcome to Bad Apple. I'm Helen and I'm Riley. And today we're covering a big one. This is going to be a slightly longer case, so settle in. Before we get started, our listens have been growing every episode. I don't know if you found that surprising, Riz, but I thought perhaps we would get a huge hype when we started and that it would die down. So, thanks everyone for coming back and revisiting old episodes. Every week we get so excited that our listeners are growing. We even got a review from the US. How cool is that? They said we had great camaraderie. What do you think of that, Riz? I think we do have great camaraderie. <laughs> Good. During Good. this lockdown, we've basically become a unicellular organism. Yeah. So we better have great camaraderie. Where do I end and Riz begin? The line is so blurred. <laughs> it's a fine line. <laughs> anyway, yeah, thank you so much for your review. Show yourself. Who are you? <laughs> or don't. That's fine. Yeah, that's fine. If you want to leave a review, though, go right ahead, because I think it might help our Apple performance. Look, I don't know. But other podcasts say that all the time. Yeah. <laughs> so do that if we'll you wish. we plug ourselves. <laughs> We'd love to hear your thoughts. So before we get going into this episode, I'd just like to put it out there that in this episode, we discuss sexually violent crimes that have been perpetrated against children. If this is something that is particularly upsetting for you, then probably tune out now. We haven't really covered content like this before, and I just thought it would be good to put a little warning here. We definitely won't be offended if you dip out on this one. Let's dive right in. From 1987 to 1991, Melbourne's eastern suburbs were gripped with fear as young girls were abducted from their homes and raped by an unknown assailant. In the notoriously safe suburbs, where people would move specifically to raise their families, investigators were at the mercy of this meticulous offender who left no real evidence and planted red herrings at every scene. To this day, the man's identity is only known as Mr. Krull. We're going to cover four specific crimes today, all of which can be linked to Mr. Krull, because he had a very specific M.O. Do you, do you know what an M.O. is, Helen? Motif. Mo- You're getting there. It's, <laughs> what does the O stand for? The, the M stands for modus, and modus. the O is operandi. Oh my the modus God. operandi. Yep. The Latin. Yep. I think it just means, like, way of operating... Way of doing things. Yeah. Yeah. So let's dive right into the cases. There are three known attacks that have been attributed to Mr. Krull publicly. These girls were all able to give accurate and similar details about their attacks. So that's how we know that they're committed by the same person. Police now suspect that there were many more attacks before these ones, possibly lower level crimes. The first attack took place on the 22nd of August 1987 in Lower Plenty. This has all happened in Melbourne. Yeah, in the eastern suburbs. So if you're not super familiar with the area in Melbourne, there'll be a map up on Instagram and Twitter. You can go check out where they were. The first attack took place on the 22nd of August 1987 in Lower Plenty. Mr. Krull broke into a family home at 4am armed with a knife and a gun. So the identity of the victim here, the girl, was never made public. Just a note. He didn't really break in. He entered through a lounge room window where he had removed a pane of glass in order to gain entry. 
He cuts the phone lines and made his way through the house without waking anyone up. This is a real 80s thing because we don't have phone lines anymore yeah. to cut. Very yeah. distant kind of concept now. So he does that. Then he goes into the parents' room and ties up the hands and feet of both parents and locks them in a wardrobe, saying, All I want is money, food, and clothes. How much money is in the house? He then tied their seven-year-old son to his bed. He blindfolded and gagged everyone with surgical tape. The use of this kind of tape might be something that plays into his MO of not wanting to injure anyone, as it's pretty gentle to the skin and breathable. He also used sailing knots, so that's probably not uncommon for people to have experience in tying knots, though. Gave police a little bit of a hint, but I guess like a lot of people probably back then knew how to tie knots. Yeah. Then he attacked the 11-year-old daughter. The attack lasted for two hours. During this time, he took regular breaks and really wasn't in a rush. The girl recalls that during the attack, he made several phone calls. Police know that these were fake because there's no record of them. And she overheard him saying that he was going to attack another family and kept calling the other person Bozo. He often used words like Bozo, Worry Wart, and Missy, like very mm. strange language. He even made himself a meal and made some for the girl as well. Do you know what he made? No. What do you reckon he made? Maybe like a sandwich? Oh, I thought he was kind of like a... I don't think he was cooking up. Baked beans kind of guy. Well, I, I don't know. Maybe. From a can. Yeah. Microwaved. He turned the radio on loudly and took the girl to the bathroom and assaulted her there. Some say this could indicate that Mr. Crawl was ashamed of the sexual attacks, taking the girl to an even more private part of the house and making sure no one could hear anything. Then he gave her a bath and cleaned her teeth. Some people say that he was so hygienic so that he didn't leave any forensic evidence. The late 80s was the start of genetic and DNA evidence procedures, so it wasn't great but still existed. But he attacked this girl again twice after the bath, seemingly creating more DNA evidence. We don't know much about the nature of these attacks, so it could have been something which didn't leave any DNA, but maybe these bath rituals were more part of the fantasy than covering his tracks, or maybe it was a bit of both. He leaves the house telling the girl, I'm going out now, so count to 100 slowly and then you can free your parents. As he leaves the house, he steals $250 cash, a shirt belonging to the father, a gold engagement ring, a men's parka coat, a Gillette razor, and a pair of men's trousers. Maybe taking the razor feeds into his DNA removal tactics. Did he use it and then knew that there would be hair and skin cells which might be able to be linked to him? Bit of a weird thing to steal. Yeah, razors are expensive though. Yeah, maybe back then. Pack of razors? Now. A Gillette razor. Now. I buy a pack of razors. Yeah, they're $15. Like, yeah, and I'm like, oh my god. Pieces of plastic and metal. Yeah. So... Possibly a reason. Maybe. The family's description of the man is as follows. He was Australian. Not sure what that means. I think he's <laughs> he had an Australian accent. Right. He had brown hair, slim build, gruff voice, soft hands, mid-twenties, but the description also notes that he had like bushy white or grey eyebrows, which might indicate that he was older. He wore an open-faced balaclava and may have used tights to obscure his upper face. I, like, googled what it looks like when people use, like, tights to hide their face. I don't know what it is about that, but it makes me so uncomfortable. You mean when they pull, like, a stocking Like a stocking, over, yeah. And it kind of, like, mushes their yeah. face a bit. There's something so unnatural yeah. about that. Yeah. It just isn't right. 
So the second attack took place over a year later, on the 27th of December, 1988, in Ringwood. He broke into the back door of a house at 5.30am, armed with a knife and a small handgun. Again, same as last time. Mm-hmm. He bound and gagged the parents and demanded money. He held a gun to the father's head and said, You're not going to be a hero, are you? Before ordering the parents to roll onto their stomachs where they were bound with copper wire using a similar sailor's knot. Their eyes and mouths were covered with the same surgical tape. He insisted he was only there for money and took $35 from their bedside table. He then cuts the phone line. He makes his way through the house to the bedroom, which was shared by four sisters. He wakes up their eldest daughter, 10-year-old Sharon Wills, calling her by her name. Now, he might have just found out her name from something in the room, maybe, but police now start to think that these attacks could have been a lot more premeditated than they initially thought. He might have been tracking the families for some time, or may have come into contact with Sharon at some point, school or after-school care, community groups, or something like that. The family were also in a local newspaper six months earlier, after a house fire. He put tape over her eyes, a ball gag in her mouth, and abducted her. He took a few items off her clothing and left. So, in the first attack, he stays in the house, and but now he's abducting these girls instead. Potentially, he thought staying in the house was too risky, or maybe he wanted more time with the girls. Her parents managed to get free within 15 minutes, which, go parents, yeah, copper wire. Cop- they were busting that out. sounds like it would hurt. Yeah. And ran to the neighbours to call the police. But Mr. Krull and Sharon were long gone by this point. She was released 18 hours later on the grounds of Bayswater High School, which is about 15 minutes further east of Sharon's home, wrapped up in green garbage bags. It's like 1.30 in the morning when this woman just, like, finds her. Once again, we have passerbys at odd hours yeah. of them. What are they doing? People are just wandering around at 1.30 in the morning. And, like, at a school? If you listen to our Mercer Bay episode, also a couple at 1.30 walking their dog. Who does that? I, I don't... Maybe. I guess maybe we just keep hearing about these people because, like, these events do happen at odd times. So yeah. the only people we're hearing about are those odd people that are around at those odd times. That's true. What was with ra- wrapping her in garbage bags? Yeah, he, like, took extra clothes for her. Yeah. But then didn't bother with that and just went with the garbage bags. All right. All I don't right. know. I yeah. think it was to, like, no, to maybe reduce, like, DNA or something. What happened to Sharon while she was held in captivity? She was shackled to the bed using a neck brace and the blindfold stayed on the whole time. This was like a bondage-style metal neck brace, not like spinal injury neck brace. She was repeatedly sexually assaulted. She was fed a sandwich and given two drinks, one glass of milk and one glass of lemonade. Those don't mix at all. Imagine drinking those. They were at separate times. Okay. I think, yeah, it demonstrates that he wasn't just giving her water. (laughs) Yeah, I guess so. He had gone and got some lemonade. That's true. Then she was told to get up and shower. He said, you have to wash yourself really good. Mr. Krull then brushed and flossed her teeth and cut her fingernails before wrapping her in garbage bags. During this time, Sharon does the absolute most. I don't know if her parents had maybe spoken to her about, like, what to do if you're abducted, but she does all the right things, and she's able to give the police a really good description of the place she was held. Sharon said she constantly heard loud aircraft noises, leading investigators to believe that it was under a flight path to Tullamarine. 
They identified Coburg, Strathmore, Keylor, Plenty and Watsonia as their suburbs of interest. Tullamarine is an airport, by the way. I mean, yeah. the suburb. Tullamarine is the suburb. But there is an airport, an airport. also called Tullamarine. Yeah. Helen once took me to Tullamarine the suburb instead t- of Tullamarine the airport. I took her to the, the letter A in Tullamarine. I was like, Helen, can you map me to the airport? And then she was like, I yeah, tried. just I take t- this exit. I was like, I don't think so. In the middle of a neighborhood. We were just in suburbia. I was like, this isn't the airport. Anyway, it probably is important to note that there are a few more airports in Melbourne than just Tullamarine. There's another commercial one at Avalon, uh, but who would go there? And there's a few others for smaller aircraft like Essendon or Moorabbin. Moorabbin is a lot closer to where all these girls lived and where they were dumped after their attacks. Make of that what you will. I'm sure there's some reason the police were going with Tullamarine and not Moorabbin, but I don't know. Sharon said the room she was kept in was the second room on the right from the front door. She then went into depth about the room. It had beige or cream carpet, peach full-length curtains, a double bed with a peach bedhead, white doona with patterns, peach lamps, lemon lampshades with thin white vertical stripes, light walls, a brown chest of drawers, a large window on the right, and another chest of drawers near the window, a wooden tripod and a camera at the end of the bed. She also said she heard camera noises. There was a metallic weight near the left of the bed, and a dark blanket covering a cabinet at the end of the bed. This is such a good description. Obviously, he could go and get new curtains and bed furnishings and things like that, but this gave them such a good lead. I also love that she used, like, she was like, peach curtains, the lemon lampshade. That's true. Accurate. That bedroom sounds awful. It does not yeah. sound like a good-looking bedroom. They've. It sounds very 80s. That's true. They've released, like, a. there's a picture of... Like an artist has drawn what it might have looked like. Is it awful? It's, it is awful. It sounds like um if you built a Sims room and just picked the first colour of each object. Yeah. That's what you would get. The third attack takes place 18 months later on the 3rd of July 1990 in Canterbury. Mr. Cool broke into the Linus family home at 11.30pm. Once again, he came in through the window. This time, he didn't have to confront and tie up the parents because they weren't home. They were at a farewell party being held in their honour as they were preparing to move back to England. This was meant to be their last night in the house before they started the move. Surely he knew that. It seems like more than a coincidence. Yeah. Their family were originally from England and were very well off. The dad was a senior partner for Price Waterhouse, which is now PwC. I've definitely heard of that, but yeah. I don't know what that is. It's like a big is. consulting firm. Right. You would know. Yeah. I have no idea. <laughs> I, I thought it was something to do with plumbing. No, because it has a water house. Yeah. <laughs> and PWC, doesn't that sound like a type of plumbing pipe? Oh, you know what you need? PVC. <laughs> oh, like, you know what you need in there? A PWC pipe. A PVC pipe. I'll get you pipe. one of those. Yeah. Okay, well, now I know it's <laughs> They'd be not... offended if they... <laughs> I thought plumbers earned heaps of money as well. Only well, on Sundays. Anyway, they were living in Monomeath Avenue, which might mean something to our Melbourne native listeners, but basically it's a very affluent street. Yeah, back then, apparently a lot of like politicians and oh. very like upper class people lived in Monomeath Avenue. So you're saying he might have, Mr. Cruel might have gotten wind of this party because he sounds like a Potentially. big guy, big popular man. The dad. Yeah. Yeah, maybe. He woke up 13 year old Nicola and her sister Fiona, who was 15. He ordered Nicola to go and get her school uniform. She went to Presbyterian Ladies College. They have like this 
It's like a purple school uniform, isn't it? Um, I'm not sure. Might be blue. You, you might know. I know they had a, they had definitely have a blazer as part of their uniform. That was like he was very specific about her getting right. a blazer. Ugh. He ordered Nicola to go and get her school uniform. While Nicola did that, he blindfolded and gagged her older sister and tied her to her bed. He ransacked the home for valuables and once again cut the phone lines. He then blindfolded and gagged Nicola and told Fiona that if her father wanted to see Nicola again, that he'd have to pay a 25k ransom. But he didn't tell them how to do it. He was just like, you're going to have to pay. Yeah, no details. He wasn't like, here's my PayPal. (laughs) He stole the car keys, put Nicola in the family car and drove a kilometre away, where he dumped the car and then drove her in another car to the house. She seems to give a consistent account about the house, so it's probably the same one. Also, interesting that he takes, I mean, I guess maybe it's the age that he takes Nicola, the younger one. When he's taken yeah. the older one the last couple of times, like the oldest sister. Yeah, but I think Fiona was too old. Yeah, right. Yeah. The parents arrived home just 20 minutes after Nicola was taken from the house. Was that because Fiona called them? No, they just like... They just arrived. Yeah, because Fiona was still tied, oh, tied up. up. Right. And they found that they were like, they got home, the car was missing. They were like, Ugh. they oh, go in the house. Not good. Fiona's there. So Fiona told them about the ransom, and they were prepared to pay it. And, you know, they were well off. They could have paid it multiple times. It wasn't a big ransom. Police think the ransom was just another smokescreen to cover up his motive or to deal with his shame, like telling the other parents he was just there for money. Nicola was held captive and repeatedly sexually abused for over 50 hours. Three days later, just after 2am on the 6th of July, which was also Nicola's 14th birthday, She was left near a power station in Kew. She was fully dressed and wrapped in a blanket. During the attacks, he had told her, You will get home. You will be home by late Thursday evening or early Friday morning. I will drop you off at a place and change your clothes, and you have to wait ten minutes, and then you can walk to a police station. I'll give you the directions. When you get back, the police will ask you a lot of questions. He seems to have a weird regard for her, like, well-being and mental health. I wonder if he was ever, like really sorry or if he just felt ashamed although this kind of reads to me like he was just overly concerned about like of what was gonna happen from there right to make sure he wouldn't get out you know right so he was like preparing but why would he prepare her for a lot of questions Mm, that's true if she doesn't have any good info Mm. to give i mean she does though yeah spoiler she has great info nicola said he kept talking to someone in another room but she never heard a response Investigators are pretty sure he was just talking to himself and was trying to set up another sort of red herring. Nicola was able to tell investigators that he was around 175 centimetres or 5 foot 8 tall. He stood next to her as they walked out of the house with his arm around her and his head was very close to hers, leading her to believe that he was about the same height as her. She also said that he had reddish brown hair. Nicola is also able to add to Sharon's description of the house. She said that the driveway was on the right-hand side of the entrance and that there was one step up from the drive to the door. She also gives a really good description of the bathroom. It had a glass sliding door shower, a bathtub, and a wall-mounted or pedestal sink, and you had to walk past the sink to get to the shower. The bath wasn't full-sized, whatever that means, maybe just a small bath. The toilet was in a separate room. It had a tiled or linoleum floor. The toilet was dual flush and low to the ground. The toilet roll holder was on the right side of the toilet, and the door to the toilet opened right to left when outside, 
Man, that is some detail. Yeah. Do you think, like, the police intern came in and was like, all right, like, what am I doing today? And the sergeant just hands him, like, 200 boxes of floor plans and he's like, you're looking for pedestal sinks. <laughs> I don't even know what a pedestal sink is. I want sink you to find every is. pedestal sink. You know how our sink is, like, built into the cabinet? Yeah. It's, like, oh. when the sink just stands by itself. I see, I see. Yeah. During the attacks, he told Nicola to keep her eyes shut if she wanted to stay alive. Did he maybe know or have, like, an inkling, maybe, that Sharon had seen some of the room? How did Sharon see the room? I think, like, when she was lying down, she could see, like, under her blindfold. Right. Or, like, you know how when you're playing, like, pin the tail on the donkey and you kind of, like, look up a little bit? <laughs> or or did I just do that? <laughs> <laughs> no, I did that too. Yeah. I think, like, that. And when she was walking, she could, like, see the floor. I see. Well, I think he might have just been saying that, but... Also, did Maybe. she had the blindfold on as well? Nicola. Yeah. Yeah, but I think he was like wanted to really make sure. Yeah. That brings us to the fourth attack, which has never been officially linked to Mr. Krull, but it carries some striking similarities. On Saturday the 13th of April 1991 in Templestowe, a male assailant armed with a knife abducted 13-year-old Carmen Chan, who actually went to the same school as Nicola. Carmen had been babysitting her two younger siblings, which was something that she did often. At 8.40pm, Carmen and one of her sisters went to go make dinner when they were confronted by who we believe was Mr. Krull. We think this because there were a lot of similarities. The balaclava that the children described was very similar. He had broken in through a window and he was demanding the girls to give him money and for Carmen to help him look for the money. He made her two sisters hide in a closet and trapped them by blocking the door with a bed before making his getaway with Carmen. Her sisters escaped the closet after a few minutes, once again, stunning work. Doing the most. How, how did they do that? I guess there were two. Maybe they just pushed the, mm. you know, managed to get the door open. And immediately placed a call to the family restaurant and their parents rushed home. Her parents were like, had moved to Melbourne 16 years before that from Hong Kong. They were what, just running like a few restaurants yeah, around the area. Yeah, they had Chinese restaurants. That is so... Wholesome. And I think... And sad. <laughs> I read that they really just wanted to, like, provide for their daughters and, like, give them a really good life oh, in Australia no. and send them to a really good school. No. And so they were putting in the work. So when her parents got home, they found their car had been vandalised with the words payback, Asian drug dealer, and more to come. This sparked an investigation into the parents' business and private lives, but this is now believed to have just been a red herring. Another indicator that it might have been Mr. Cruel. Anyway, those words weren't that original, if I have to say. Yeah. So it sounds like it was... Asian <laughs> drug dealer. What? More to come. More to come. That's us at the end of every podcast episode. Yeah. Investigators believe he walked with Carmen for 300 metres before driving off in a waiting car. After no sign of Carmen, 72 hours later, which is a long time, you know, even by his standards for how quickly he dropped the girls off after... Her parents pleaded for Carmen to be returned home at a press conference. We watched a clip from that press conference. It's like the saddest thing I've ever seen. Yeah. The mom is just, she's crying. She's hysterical. She's just, you know, pleading for she's him like to bring the daughter back. Holding up this, like, dress. She's like, this is your favorite dress. You have to come home and wear it again. Oh, my God. And the her two little sisters had both, like, written letters to her being like, I'm so scared. Of the dark at night, please come home. We need you to help us with our homework. It is so sad. So sad. 
After 23 days, a $100,000 reward was offered, but even that turned up nothing. Eventually, her body, with three gunshot wounds to the back of her head, was found a year later in a landfill area in Thomastown. It is suspected that the body had been there for around 12 months, so pretty much like the whole time, right? Mm -hmm. Investigators haven't been able to confirm if this was done by Mr. Krull. Detective Chris O'Connor answered a journalist's question in 2013 about whether Mr. Krull was responsible. He said, We just don't know if it was Mr. Krull who murdered Carmen. We just can't be sure because there isn't enough evidence to make a valued judgment about whether it was or wasn't him in the Carmen case. But a lot of people think that Carmen's murder was Mr. Krull because the account from the sisters really fits in with the MO that we have, which we now know includes the following themes. It starts with a home invasion with very little damage. He wore a balaclava with stitching around the eyes and mouth to further obscure his face. He would tie up the parents or any other siblings if they were home. He normally cuts the phone lines. He didn't in Carmen's case, though. He usually had already selected one child as a target and sometimes knew their name. He would be armed with a gun and a kitchen knife. He would plant red herrings at the scene, like fake conversations or setting up a fake motive. He took excellent care of the girls he attacked, fed them, bathed them. In fact, every action he did was very careful. He didn't make much mess of the house when invading, he never intended to hurt anyone else in the house, and cleaned up all possibilities for forensic evidence. Additionally, Carmen's mother said that Carmen was not the type of girl to accept her captivity without a fight, and would have resisted his attacks. She, along with many others, believed that Carmen may have ripped off her blindfold despite being told not to, and seen Mr. Krull's true identity. It suggested that after she saw him, he had no choice but to kill Carmen to protect himself. Carmen's murder was very execution-style. It would have allowed the murderer to potentially disconnect a little from the act. They wouldn't have had to look at her face, they could have been stood further away, which does line up with Mr. Krull's MO of being very caring. Barely passes the bottom line of being caring. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, he just didn't want to face, yeah. face her and have to look at her. Another thing that points to Mr. Krull is that he stopped offending, or at least stopped offending in this way, breaking into the houses and holding girls captive, after Carmen's attack. Was it perhaps that he couldn't face what he'd done, that he was so shaken by hurting someone so much? That does seem to make a lot of sense. Mm. So where is this investigation at now, then? Well, after Carmen's remains were found, the investigation went cold pretty quickly. The task force, Operation Spectrum, which had been set up to investigate the attacks, was shelved in 1994. Operation Spectrum had interviewed 27,000 people, including people in Britain and the US. They'd sifted through almost 11,000 public tip-offs. They'd visited 30,000 houses, and the team worked more than 25,000 hours of unpaid overtime. Still, this turned up nothing in the search for Mr. Krull, but it wasn't completely redundant. They uncovered 74 people who had committed sexual offences against children, from rape to incest to attempted bestiality and possession of child pornography. It also prompted a lot of procedural changes in how these crimes are investigated and legislative reform for increased powers to tackle child pornography. There were a lot of policing errors in these cases, which potentially led to the loss of valuable evidence. Yeah, plus we were talking about how this was some like golden moment where DNA you know, using DNA evidence had just kind of started. Yeah, so the they definitely 80s. didn't have things like they probably didn't have, like, rape kits, and they probably weren't, like, making sure that 
the crime scene was really sterile. A lot of things were probably like cross-contaminated. In 2010, the Sierra files were released to Melbourne newspaper The Herald Sun. These contained information given by the FBI. Yeah, the FBI helped out Victoria Police in sort of making like a profile of what Mr. Krull might kind of look like or act like. They describe a number of characteristics that the offender would exhibit, such as being pretty functional in society, although if they had a relationship, their partner would probably be aware of their pedophilic sexual desires. They'd probably be into bondage, slavery and captivity porn and might even make some of their own. They would have an intense interest in children and spend a great deal of time with them in what might appear to be a selfless kind of act, but it would be to place themselves above suspicion. The FBI were very keen to dispel this myth about the child molester being a very obvious danger and that they don't always look a certain kind of way. In 2016, which was 25 years since Carmen was taken, Victoria Police released the names of seven people to the Herald Sun. These are suspects that they've been unable to eliminate. The Herald Sun was like, okay, we won't publish them, but we'll go in and cost them all and see if they have anything to say and publish that, which is media. Really a current affair. Do you have a current affair? No. Oh. Oh, maybe I do. Not a big media person. Yeah. A current affair. Every, all my Australian homies know. Is it a newspaper? No, it's like oh. a TV show. And they, they like... Accost people. They're ve- it's very like... I don't even know what style of journalism it is, but they're always like on people's lawns, like shoving microphones in their face. Right. So only one of them talked out of the seven, and we only know the identity of that one person. The others... Some of them are so off the radar, some have changed their names, some of them aren't even on the electoral roll. The suspect we know was named by Victorian police as ex-Melbourne University lecturer Dr. Brian Alkner. Why do we suspect him? Well, his timeline definitely adds up. He was jailed in 1974 for 10 years for similar crimes. Obviously, there's probably a lot of people like this, but still, he was released three years before the first attack in 1987. The crimes he was convicted of look very similar. Home invasion armed with a knife, tied up young victims and raped them. In addition to the timeline adding up, his disposition also raised suspicion. A psychiatrist during the trial said, He gets sexual arousal at the prospect of tying a girl up and raping her. He has had this sexual fantasy about tying up women and raping them since his late teens, but only in the last couple of years has he carried them out. So we know during his time at Melbourne Uni, he was a senior lecturer in French Enlightenment philosophy. Enlightenment. Oh, sorry. (laughs) French Enlightenment philosophy. Not that that makes more sense. And he really did have some weird niches, including the idea of sex death. What is sex death? Bro, I tried so hard to understand what this was. I was Googling different words, different combinations of words. I was Googling the theorists that he like cited and I still kind of don't get it I have an arts degree and for what for what basically I think it's like this idea that there are similar enticing aspects of both sex and death I found this quote erotic excess violent transgression obscenity and the threat of death are both provocative and intoxicating he wrote some stuff about like sexual deviancy in one of his essays saying civilized society through its art provides the possibility of enjoying violent sensation without occasioning actual bodily harm nevertheless the emotion involved in this aesthetic experience will always be of an inferior and superficial kind 
since the work cannot help being an imitation, an inferior copy of the real thing. This might be a bit of a stretch, but can we draw some parallels with like child porn here? Potentially, he became bored of the inferior emotions of enjoying the art, air commas art, and needed to experience the real thing. So Elkner was really into this idea. He was also really obsessed with this idea of the sublime criminal, which is just like someone who was like a really great criminal, who rises above the mediocrity of normal criminals. Not to be mistaken for... The smooth smooth criminal. criminal. The other category. (laughs) Nah, the smooth criminal is the sublime criminal. The sublime criminal tries to be the smooth criminal, but cannot be. Right. There's my take. Anyway, (laughs) Elkner wrote in one of his essays, and I quote, The essential thing is to feel strongly, to do evil rather than to do nothing, since the mediocre man lives and dies like a brute. So, like, academic freedom is a, is a huge thing. You can say what you like in academia. So I'm not coming for these, like, weird French Enlightenment philosophers. But, you know, there's a lot of schools of thought that are definitely, like, very dated. And perhaps these from 18th century France, maybe they don't align so well with current ideas of society and how we interact. Nevertheless, investigators never got enough on Elkner to make a charge. Potentially, he might have known what kinds of evidence led to his first convictions, and maybe he knew how to be more careful. Maybe they should have just charged him on that writing. Yeah, just absolute BS. (laughs) (laughs) Just making shit up. So, do you plead guilty to absolute BS? (laughs) (laughs) So, another suspect who wasn't listed as an official suspect to the Herald Sun, but has gained his own reputation as the potential Mr. Cruel, is Robert Keith Knight. Knight's timeline also adds up. He was convicted in 1998 for offences that took place in 1980 and 1996. Experts say that it's very unlikely for an offender of this kind to take a 16-year break. So the Mr. Cruel attacks in the years between 1987, 88, 90, and 91 would line up. The kinds of offences committed by Knight have similarities to Mr. Cruel too. He held young girls captive, sometimes drugging them, for the purpose of assaulting them and producing child porn. Knight was a youth worker and held volunteer positions with groups across Melbourne, which put him in contact with countless children. It also may have given him knot-tying experience, which he might have used during those attacks. Composite drawings of what Mr. Krull may have looked like do look eerily similar, but we also like never actually saw Mr. Krull's face, so it's yeah, hard I think to say. They did guess a lot of his features. Unfortunately, Knight committed suicide in 2013 after falling from the top floor of his prison unit. So, we'll never get a confession from the guy. Both of these men do kind of fit the bill of what is listed in the Sierra files we talked about earlier. Alkner was married with children, and Knight was married as well. Alkner worked at a university where he had contact with plenty of young people, and Knight was even specifically involved with various schools during his time as a youth worker and first aid instructor. Knight definitely made his own pornography, and both suspects were very functional, holding down steady appointment or volunteer roles. Police say that anyone who knew Knight would have had no idea he was up to something. Knight's involvement with scouts for over 20 years indicates he was community-minded. Scouts like Boy Scouts. Boy Scouts, yeah. Knots. Knots. That's what they do in Scouts. They yeah, tie they knots. tie knots. You know who else tied really good knots? Mr. Cruel. Mm. But also, maybe it really isn't either of these two. 
Maybe it was different members of a highly organized sex ring who knew how to leave the same trademarks. Branding. They were branded. Maybe the tripod itself was a red herring and had nothing to do with child porn at all. There's so much we don't know about these cases. So now, the reward that was set at 300k in the early 90s now stands at 1.2 million dollars. But we still have nothing on it. It's not looking good for results now, right? Yeah, I mean, the further we get from the attacks, the more any possible evidence will deteriorate, the more people get a lot older, adults at that time, and Mr. Cruel himself would be like in their 60s or 70s or even older now if Mm. they're still alive. That being said, the Golden State Killer... He was old. Yeah. When he was found. But didn't they have some, like, didn't they find some golden nugget of, like, hmm. DNA? It's not a lost cause, but I'm just saying, like, yeah. Anyway, that's all pretty screwed up, this case. Uh, we live in Melbourne. You been to any of these suburbs that we talked about today? I've been to Templestowe, where Carmen's family lived. And I've been to, I've driven through Thomastown. Thomastown yeah. is like, you know when you go to the end of the 19 tram, like Coburg North? Yeah. It's like just the next one up. Oh, right. Yeah. How was Templestowe? Templestowe now is like, it's a it's a beautiful suburb. Very leafy and all the houses there are like on really big plots of land. They have really big backyards. But back then? Back then, I'm not really sure. I think it might have been a bit less developed. Yeah. Yeah, I think the city has really like spread out there a lot more. Have a look on our social media. We'll post a little map of where all the abductions were and where all the girls were found. That'll help you understand a little bit more the area that we're talking about. Because I still always think that Ringwood is near the airport, and it really isn't. <laughs> I don't know why I think that. I, I think I think that because you know how every airport has a ring road? My brain just goes, Ringwood? <laughs> yeah. Airport. <laughs> yeah. I still have just an awful understanding of Melbourne and surrounding suburbs, and we live here. Hmm bit closer home this case happening around here so yeah big case go deep brief yeah go chill out that was heavy it was heavy where i need to go chill out also fun fact it was the son who gave mr cruel his name and that was after the fourth case with carmen and when we were picking this case it was up between mr stinky and mr cruel and why do you guys have a thing about naming these misters I don't know. <laughs> Just really rolls off the tongue. I guess so. I would say Mr. Stinky rolls off the tongue a bit better than Mr. Cruel. We're going to have to cover Mr. Stinky. He will get his time. Yeah. <laughs> of course it was the son that gave him that name. Queens of sensationalist journalism. Mm. It did take off. He is now known as Mr. Cruel. That's true. So that wraps up today's case. Thanks so much for joining us. And we will chat to you guys again next Monday. For episode six. Yeah, we'll see you then. Bye.